everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arbilla, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run courses and mentorship designed to help clinicians apply a person-centered approach to their clinical practice. If you're interested, all our details on online and in-person courses are on our website, tkex.org, and join along our Facebook discussion group as well for more. Today, I'm really excited to talk to Miriam Dillon. She's a physiotherapist and researcher based out of University of Queensland, currently undertaking a PhD in sociology. We're going to dive into her story, her research, touching on critical reflexivity, expanding on some of the concepts from the world of sociology to broaden and expand our perspectives as clinicians. So Miriam, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to get chatting about all things sociology and emotions. Keen, keen. And also shout out, first podcast. Congrats. Mm, yeah, so I'm far. a little bit nervous, so forgive me if I'm a bit stuttery. <laughs> and for any of the, the listeners as well, and also for your reassurance, I still make all the mistakes and start of myself. So <laughs> as a first question, and um, we can go back to wherever you'd like. Um, and predominantly from your university trainings. What's your story, Miriam? Um, so you might know from my accent, although my family would argue that I don't sound Irish anymore, but I'm Irish. Um, so I grew up in Ireland and then I did my physio bachelor's in London. Um, so the University of uh, St. George's University of London. Um, and then I worked in England for a while, did a little bit of work in Ireland, um, then went back to England, um, and then I went to New Zealand and worked there for a while, and then I came to Australia. Um, so I found myself in Australia, in Brisbane, um, and then I did my master's, my musculoskeletal master's at the University of Queensland back in 2016. Um, and then I said after that I was never going to do anything academic ever again um, but I've somehow found myself um, doing a PhD so um, yeah that's my just a brief history brief kind of geographical history of my life maybe um, but then I I kind of reached a point um, with physiotherapy that I was just quite frustrated with physiotherapy and I was thinking, should I go back and do a psychology degree? Um, but then it was going to take me a long time to become a clinical psychologist. Um, so I wondered what I'm really interested in is emotions and how emotions in chronic pain, but also emotions within clinical interactions. Um, and the more I started to learn about that and the more I started to learn about myself and my own emotional responses to things and how things and how my past experiences have shaped how I respond to things and how my context shapes how I respond to things. Um, the more I started to understand chronic pain more, the more I started to change how I approached my physiotherapy practice. So I work in the area of chronic pain um, and it changed how I understood my patients as well. Um, and I just really felt that clinicians really need to know this. Um, so that's how I ended up um, going down the route of um, so my PhD is in, I'm in the School of Social Science, but I'm still looking at physiotherapy practice um, and how we navigate um, distress and emotions in chronic low back pain care. It's incredible and uh, so relatable. The, there's a story in my mind of, as an EP, first of all, was go back and do physio and then go mm -hmm. back and do psychology because once 
we learn about, I think for me, the gateway drug was pain. Once we learn more mm-hmm. about pain and how it's a, a sensory and emotional experience, mm-hmm. yeah. it's very definition, the more we're mm-hmm. like, oh, how much training have we had in this mm-hmm. area? Um, yeah, and, and but even when we think about relating to people, we're working with people all the time, like we're, we're caring professionals and um, we don't receive much training in how to care for people or how to interact with people either, um, which I think is a really big gap in our knowledge bank as well. It really is. And you, you touched on that you were you're feeling a bit frustrated um, yourself and that kind of drove you to to study more? What, what was that kind of transition, that, that period of time like, say, after clinical practice for a few years, what, what led to that frustration for you? Yeah, I guess I was just frustrated. I probably didn't realise why I was frustrated for a while, but um, I think I was fascinated by chronic pain. Um, and But there were certain situations there were certain people who I felt I could help but there were certain situations or um, clinical encounters with people where I felt I wasn't um, helping people in the best way and then I was getting distressed but I was also getting distressed with and frustrated with um, just not having anywhere to go to upskill in that area as well um, And I did my musculoskeletal master's, which was great and it was amazing. And I thought like, maybe I just need to learn more. And and I did learn a huge amount and it was really great, Um, but it still didn't really feed that appetite for, um, I still felt there was something missing. Um, But even just through that process of my master's, it was a very um, stressful time. And actually understanding why it was stressful for me was started to make shape help me understand emotions and then help me understand pain as well because pain is threat and or that perception of threat and like that was what I was experiencing in the masters as well like when I was coming to assignments or to vivas and I would freak out and really affected how I performed and how I interacted with people and then I was starting to understand that like my context that I was living in or my past experiences and how they were shaping how I was the threat I was perceiving or the lack of safety that I was perceiving in this situation that then helped me to start actually linking it with pain and then linking how maybe I, how do I create safety for patients in clinical encounters as well? And um, it just reconceptualized how I understood pain, I think. Um, So then I was quite frustrated then within the paradigms we work with in physio, it's quite, we treat the body as a machine, it's very objective. And I felt quite constricted with what I could do or what I was allowed to do. Um, and I'm not saying you need to treat emotions, you don't, but like even just the timelines that we work within, like it's a very linear timeline. It's very like goals based. And sometimes the patients we see just can't, they can't initially, they don't know what they want and they just feel distressed and they're in pain. And sometimes they need time to build trust and to, to actually start processing what's happening for them or understanding what's happening that then they start to go, oh, I'd like to be able to do this. And often I think within our frameworks as well, we were very um, pathology focused and rather than strengths focused. And so we pick out what's wrong with someone and we want to fix it. And sometimes we just can't. And sometimes there's many things. And um, 
yeah so I think it was through that those frustrations then that kind of led me to um wanting to do something different I guess um and then I met the um, famous Jenny Setchell um so I was working in private practice um, or I just moved to private practice so I've been working in the public setting um and Jenny and Karimi Mosquito were just starting their um, biopsychosocial um, model project um, and so I was a participant for them in their project and I got talking to Jenny and and then we'd met and I was like Jenny was keen but then I think life got in the way um, and then the following year COVID hit and I was working part-time private part-time public so I had a lot of extra time on my hands when we were in lockdown and I started thinking more seriously about it again and got back in touch with Jenny and here I am. <laughs> wow that's amazing and uh, for the listeners as well they can refer to our chat with Karimi um, on her, this paper that we're talking about now and, and more and it's mm -hmm. such a dream team um, yeah it's amazing and um, and also we've got um like this amazing team but also um Rebecca Olson um who is now my primary supervisor um and that's how Jenny connected me with Rebecca who's a sociologist um and um yeah so I'm really thankful um for the all the amazing people that I'm working with <laughs> it's so cool how uh, you became you went from participant to mm. you know, researcher as well yeah that, yeah that, that frustration and also I, I feel like it would have taken some insight to have that reflection on why am I feeling frustrated what is it about this situation because we can get so easily caught up in maybe for instance blame patients or blame ourselves mm. for having yeah, responsibility yeah. and not yeah. seeing people get better and it's like why there must be yeah. something wrong with me and I'm I don't know enough or I don't have the skills uh, or mm. there's something wrong with the patients yeah. and they're you know, lazy or something. Yeah, and I think I was frustrated. Well, there was there was a mixture. There was like I often hear my colleagues talking about how like we've got difficult encounters and and like I think when you're when it's like we're working in environments where we just do the same. Like we, I think bringing in critical reflexivity was so important to challenge like those taken for granted ways of doing things or like from a systemic level to an individual level as well and um actually starting to reflect on like why we do what we do and the um realizing that it's not always the patient's fault and um we're actually being really harmful when we're thinking that way um and often it's not our fault either. Um, and so one of my favorite shows um, is Ted Lasso. Um, so I'm going off on a bit of a tangent, but one of um, Ted's great um, quotes is be curious and not judgmental. Um, and that's something I wanna keep reminding myself of. And I think we should be reminding it ourselves all the time, being curious about our patients, being curious about our colleagues, being curious about our world um, and not judgmental. That curiosity to, to continually question I guess all the things that we maybe never realized or noticed or paid attention to, like you've mentioned the paradigms that we work within it's, it's, mm. there's so many assumptions inbuilt within that patho anatomical, uh, pathological diagnosis focused, uh, lens and less on the, the human, less on the systems impacting both us as the clinician and the patient. And so that's, and, it, and I hear that you were inspired as well from your participation in that research to then mm. go into the PhD route whilst you were working part-time. Is that 
what was that transition for, for you life uh, like after the being a participant and also having the, the part-time clinical roles what drove you towards yeah. that research route I think being part of the research connected me with the people, like-minded people, I think, like Jenny and Karimi and Rebecca um, and the rest of my team as well. And um, it kind of showed me how we can do research differently. Um, so the methods that, the methodology that they were using, um, so observations of clinical practice, that was what I was exposed to. And then we had some clinician dialogues. So there were reflexive dialogues or conversations with clinicians. So starting to challenge how we think about things um, or challenge why we do what we do. And like actually get his thinking about what is the biopsychosocial model and um, what are the components of it? And that was just really intriguing to me. Um, and I'd also been, um, so the San Diego Pain Summit, um, I'd been listening to some of their um, talks, which were so inspiring. Um, and then I'd listened to one by Maxi Marchak. Um, he talked about therapeutic alliance. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so fascinating. Like this is so important and so relevant. Um, and so Jenny, New Maxi and so Maxi is also part of my team as well. Um, so I think it was just meeting the right people um, first and kind of expanding, broadening my knowledge of what research is, I guess. Um, and then I joined the team. So I enrolled in my PhD and then the, I became part of the research team analysis meetings for the project as well. Um, so that was quite a confronting experience. Um, so all our data is de-identified, but I was able to identify that they were talking about me um, when we were like looking at observations. Um, and I was like, whoa, I did that. And like, and then realizing like the impact of what I did and how that would um it would impact like those I thought I was doing the right thing and I thought I was doing what was good for the patient, but like it wasn't and um I was missing cues from the patient and um so I was going on my like I was just out of my master's and I was like right I was prescribing a glute strengthening exercise for a patient I was like, at this patient struggle standing and struggles lifting things and right they need to strengthen their glutes got weak glutes and I was like doing an exercise that the evidence says you need to do prescribe exercise and how to prescribe it and um but I wasn't watching that she was really uncomfortable and I did it in the gym where there was mirrors all around and um and she didn't, she was saying things that I should have picked up on that like she was uncomfortable watching herself and um, in the mirror and she felt silly doing the exercise. And but I was like, no, she needs to do it because that's what the evidence says. And um, so that was quite a eye opener for me of like, whoa, there's, there's some things I need to change. But it was so, it was quite a visceral experience. It was quite a, um, quite a shock. Um, quite confronting and I think I got a bit offended at the start um so it's quite a it's a good reminder for me like that like it is challenging um to change how we do things or how we've learned to do things um but it also has been the impetus for me to really want to change what we do as well or like how I do things as well or being a bit more we don't need to change everything be more attuned to what's happening um in a clinical encounter as well yeah, it, it, there's a, a few analogies uh, within the acceptance and commitment world of like if you were to live your life living uh, with rose-tinted sunglasses and then suddenly someone points out, hey, 
you're wearing rose tinted sunglasses and then you suddenly realize maybe all the things that you've been doing or all the things that you've been taught mm -hmm. but you had never realized it before they had mentioned it so it's kind of a rude awakening that mm -hmm. oh I didn't even notice that I was wearing these glasses um yeah so so that that kind of spurred you to to learn more through that experiential process of uh, realizing oh damn I, I did all that yeah this is what happened from that and I didn't mean it mm. and and I think yeah. uh, to empathize uh, if, if it's anything like my experience this is what we've been taught and we were just doing the best that we could with the information mm. exactly. that we had exactly. so, um, and not everything we thought is bad it's like all really good stuff it's mm. the athlete like it's we just need to think more broadly yeah and and that reflexive practice is is so key to having these moments and having that awareness of the lenses the glasses that we might be wearing um mm. so quite the experience and so leading you down into the the phd and and uh, from from your findings so far even reflecting on that study that we've been talking about what, what would you say some of the the key aspects and i'm gonna have to make this like a buzzfeed you know top five things people don't want to know <laughs> but if, if there were a handful of 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 learnings that that you've had from from your work so far what, what would you say they've been good question um i think number one we are relational people um we are social beings we live in we don't live independently to our environment to our to people in the world um so we cannot ignore people's social context, people's relationships, people's past histories, the systems and the structures that we work within, the world that we live in and the political factors that we live within as well, um, cultural factors. And they all shape who we are, how we interact with people, how we experience health and well-being or illness as well. Um, so for example, with my special interest in chronic pain, Chronic pain is influenced by all of these things, how people will, if we, like whatever treatment we prescribe, how people are able to participate in that will be influenced by all of these contextual factors as well. Um, so when you get a sociolog sociological lens on things, it really opens your eyes to all of these um, factors that influence um, health and illness and treatment and medical care and I think we can often give it I think we acknowledge it and there's a perhaps a superficial understanding of that but I don't think we actually integrate it into care and practice very well and it's hard because I think there's limitations to how we can practice as well so like in the paper that we've been talking about how um, physiotherapists attend to the human aspects of care like we work within systems that are like time-limited appointments we often have back-to-back -back patients like we don't always have the we often think we don't have the time to attend to all of these things but sometimes we need to be more flexible with how we do things it makes complete sense and it's we we kind of are aware of the social side with uh within the a bps model for instance and the the categories typically are uh, social support at home um and that's pretty much it maybe maybe you get yeah. a few more about like relationships but that's that's the extent of yeah. our knowledge so we understand it from a theoretical perspective but then mm. 
what we do or how we incorporate that knowledge in conversations, in interactions, or just the appreciation of how what we say and do together with someone in the 30 minutes or to an hour that we have with them is then integrated and then is is maybe um, how that can then blend into their world, to their social world, to their relationships, mm-hmm. to their other contexts outside of the clinic walls um, is that that takes a lot of reflection and, uh, to do and a lot of work that we often don't have the, the time for. We don't have the skill sets or the frameworks, the theories for. Is it, that's what I'm, I'm taking yeah. Am I on the right track with, with that, that point that you mentioned that we're all relational. Yeah, and also like, like we think about the, in Australia, we live in a, um, a probably a neoliberal society. So like increasing individualized societies, increasing responsibility on the individual. And like, we know that social isolation um, impacts everything. people like, it, yeah. And it's like chronic pain is um, like there's neuroscience studies that show that people who are, are more isolated increases pain sensitivity. So like, and that's like, I'm talking a very small thing there, but like we, when you start to think about the societies we live in as well, then like there's more and more isolation and loneliness and, and how that impacts people, their, their health experience, their pain experiences, but also then how they'll be able to engage with um, treatment. And I think we need to be changing how we approach, like, approach care in terms of like with physiotherapists, we're, we're taught to like increase the range of motion of the knee or increased lumbar flexion but actually we need to be applying it into more meaningful activity and valued activity like how do we encourage someone to find some social connection like how what are what are groups that they could what are what's out there in the community and it's hard because there's probably limited opportunities for connection in community or but I think we need to be exploring that more or how can we instead of saying telling someone they need to go for a 30-minute walk three times a week how can we encourage them to go for a walk with their partner or with their a family member or a friend or something um and having these questions is new to a lot of people i think that mm. that perspective is is uh it can be such a game changer of like of who can you walk with rather than mm. just the prescription itself of yeah frequency, intensity, time, et cetera. Um, and, and that, that lens is, is often forgotten, or maybe it's seen as maybe perhaps less important than the other knowledge that we have. Yeah. Um, so yeah. It's, it's a bit foreign or we're not sure maybe how to have these conversations. Um, and, and even the, the imagining now the questions that you would have uh, experienced, heard from the reflection, the, the critical reflexivity from your work is also all these questions are new questions that mm. we have never you've never heard before. I, I know from from the limited experience I've had, there's all these questions of, of who, what are the systems that are keeping someone at this stage of their life right now? Um, what how has their history led to this moment here, and and what mm. what what kind of systems are perpetuating this around this individual? Like all these zoomed out questions that yeah, <laughs> can so foreign and different to what we are used mm. to as musculoskeletal physical therapists um yeah what kind of questions would you say uh, we've touched on a few what, what, what and also feel free to expand on any points i've made i'm thinking questions that might be helpful for, for starting this process of 
incorporating the social? Mm, that's a that's a good question. Um, I think one thing. So I'm going to veer off for a bit and then bring me back if I don't get back to it. And I can only speak for physiotherapy here. Um, often we have very set ways of doing things. So which is not always bad. Um, it can be helpful. But often if we're stick rigid to these things, then it limits, it often limits what we can see or recognition or attention to emotion um, or understanding the whole pain experience. And I don't know if we need to ask different questions, but I think it's what we do with the information that we get will be different. Um, so often like we'll have that, we have a template, like you ask for present condition and you ask for past medical history and your drug history and you've got your list of questions and then you've got your social history. Um, so we do ask about family and relationships. We do ask about activity levels. We do ask about work, but I think often we ask it and we don't actually do anything or we don't integrate it. Um, and I actually believe the more and more I think about this, we need to shift from having a specific diagnosis to having more of a formulation like what psychology do. Um, so it's because for anyone, there isn't just one specific thing causing their pain or limiting their activity. There's a whole range of factors. It's multifactorial and they're all in relationship, interrelated, all affecting each other. And um, you may have more dominant things, but then you have other factors that are influencing it too. So we need to, I think we need to consider how someone who's not working, who hasn't been able to work because they've got pain, their financial stress, they're unemployed. So maybe there's a loss of meaning and purpose in their life and they, how is that impacting their experience? And then how can we help them? to find meaning and purpose again and value. And I think as human beings, we need to feel valued. We need to feel that there's meaning and purpose in life. Um, and so as well as the physical things that we find in our exam, these social and emotional factors are influencing their experience and we need to integrate it more into care. Yeah. Um, and that's formulating, understanding this person's experience in life. Absolutely. That as you mentioned, the, the case formulation, I feel is uh, rarely taught in a way that, that incorporates the social, the emotional and how they integrate, how they influence someone's pain experience. I think it's, it's only mm. talked about from maybe a, a, a different circle or on the outside or just as a, che a checklist, like a tick box kind of exercise. Um, yeah. And I imagine if someone's in a multidisciplinary team, that can be useful as a way of like, okay, I'm going to get this information and I'm going to pass this on to my social mm. worker, to my psychologist, to my mental health, my yeah. support worker, NDA, yeah. whatever um, other team members you have. But, exactly. but oftentimes yeah. we, we don't have access to a multidisciplinary mm -hmm. team. That, it's a privilege to access a multidisciplinary team for a lot of people. It really is. So yeah. I think that, it, that case formulation can be trans-professional. That can be across all professions. We can start at least using these frameworks um, mm -hmm. as a yeah. starting point so then as you yeah. mentioned it's not just the questions that we ask but what we do with the answers to these questions yes yeah yes yeah um, it, um that like the case formulation for any listeners uh, the four p's come to mind i'm not sure if um you've heard of the uh, predisposing precipitating uh perpetuating and protective factors my uh, uh -huh psychologist supervisor will be happy for me to memorize this but um yeah. when it comes to case formulation for those who who are like what the hell is case formulation what what is that um how would you maybe uh, introduce that concept 
when when having a, a say talking to a physiotherapist or, or an EP who's never heard of case formulation I guess we've heard of case yeah. reviewing uh, but not case formulation how would you describe it yeah I guess this is based on my just thinking this is not based on anything in the research um, and I guess like we know that pain is multifactorial. We've got biological factors, we've got psychological, we've got social, we've got cultural, we've got like we think about power as well. And if we or spiritual factors as well and contextual factors in the environment that we live in. And so I'm thinking of what are the what are the elements of the bio here? What are the elements of the psychological? What are the elements of the social? Um, when I'm thinking when I'm formulating what's happening for this person or what's this person's pain experience. And then what there'll be things that we definitely can't attend to, but I also think we need to be recognized that these are real things for people. Like I can't change that, like someone's trauma experience and I don't intend to treat that, but we have a multidisciplinary team. But often when we don't, like I still think we need to acknowledge that this is present for this person and influencing their experience. Yep, I think acknowledging yeah. it is important. I think it's easy to um, maybe unintentionally ignore the, that these mm. factors are playing a really big role. And no matter how good our, say, exercise prescription and even motivational interviewing communication skills are, there's still going to be financial barriers. There's still going to be yeah. other systemic issues or uh, things in their past that need to be addressed or, or it would be beneficial to at least acknowledge and, and maybe that might be a sign for referral or maybe that might be a sign mm. to, to look into um, other approaches, as you've mentioned, incorporating yeah. other people in their network. Yeah, yeah. And then maybe recognising where our limitations are as well in, in what we can offer, how we can help as well. And, and with mm. your PhD so far, Miriam, you've, you've been involved in uh, numerous studies now. Could you tell us a bit more about uh, what your PhD is, is looking towards um, finding and, and bringing to light within the world of sociology and, and chronic pain physiotherapy? Um, so my, my, my first paper, um, which is the one that was published, that was based on data from another project. And where we, what we identified there is physios find it hard to recognize emotion and find it hard to navigate emotions in clinical interactions. Um, so my PhD then has now become more focused on um, emotions and distress and chronic pain care. Um, so my first, my next paper um, is a theoretical paper where I propose a reconceptualization of distress. So current understandings of distress is that it's individualized. So it's a problem within the patient. It's often pathologized. It's often seen as something that's wrong. That's a problem that we need to either avoid or we need to fix it. It's often associated with negative um, poor prognostic factors with, with pain as well. Um, whereas we argue, we use sociology theory to actually argue that distress is what we call an affective assemblage. So it's it's often a very reasonable response to adversity in life or to the challenges that we face. Um, but also clinicians experience distress and both the clinicians and the patients' experiences of distress are influenced by many things in the world from past experiences to the societies we live in, the social relationships to the um, structures that we work in or like time-limited appointments or back-to-back um, challenging encounters um, or challenging complex patients to um, home life that 
like it's very hard to separate and leave that at home if you've got a sick child at home and then you come into work and like that that's all going to influence how we our emotions and distress within a clinical interaction that paper just starts to um, present a new way a new threat, new way of conceptualizing distress um, so beyond a pathology um, within a patient who actually it's a very normal reasonable response to living with pain and to living in this complex world that we live in um, an ever-changing world <laughs> um, so so based on their their presentation I think um, that, that brings a empathy I think it, it moves away from mm, uh, exactly. distress or yeah. you know, stress anxiety as bad as things you need to fix as yes, normal. Yeah. it's part of this experience yeah. it's part of this human and it's experience. normal and yeah it's- and it's and I think de-threatening it often mm. I think when we when someone is distressed it's we don't know what to do or it's scary or we don't we don't want to um, open the can of worms um but so there's a fear and I think that whether we recognize it or not, um, I think patients can pick up on it as well. Um, and that can affect the patient too. Um, and also kind of the threatening our own experiences of distress. And actually, because often the structure or the organizations that we work in, or even within physio, like are challenging emotions acceptable? Um, or how are they looked? Are they seen as weak? Um, that there's a problem with you and you can't cope with this actually. But I think working with people with pain or I think with people in general can be stressful and can be distressing. And I think we need to actually normalize that and actually formally and informally support um, each other. Yeah, I can imagine working in some clinics where maybe privacy is not uh, available and having these deep and meaningful and uh, um, emotionally driven uh, interactions and maybe having emotions in the room, but mm. that there's that uh, because of the lack of privacy, first of all, maybe some emotions are hidden or mm. there's a, a silencing of, of someone's uh, emotional experience. So it's not addressed. It's not brought up it's not acknowledged yeah exactly and you're just like you're just highlighting part of the affect of assemblage that we identified in our study as well like there were some instances where clinical interactions were in curtain cubicles and it was very noisy there's people walking around there's um, interactions happening next door there's um, footsteps and trolleys passing by and um, that interferes with it, it affects the consult. And then when you've got someone who's in a very vulnerable place and has got a lot of, has had lots of medical conditions and living pain is really impacting their life. They just lost loss of identity, loss of, they're really vulnerable. And then it's difficult to share in that environment. And then it's difficult for the physio to be present in that environment. Kind of goes back to what you mentioned about there's a surface level understanding of this. And we kind of hear the buzzword of non-specific contextual effects uh, or placebo which I don't really like using that term but like the, all yeah. these effects are a part of the, the process but then integrating that into our treatment mm. and yeah actively taking time and effort to look at our context and look at our clinic environment for mm. instance and seeing and appreciating how all these factors are a part of the treatment effects as much yeah. as our say interventions I think there's too much of uh, there's too much. There's a lot of focus, we'll say, on interventions and what we do to mm. people, and less on where yeah. we're we're having these interactions with yeah, people. Yeah, yeah. And are we creating a safe environment? And um, 
yeah exactly and there's things that we can't change like the um but I think we don't I don't I think sometimes we take for granted where we're working and don't actually start to think about how could I improve this and how could I make this a safer place for me and for my patient and enhance that encounter and that connection Hmm. hopefully this inspires some reflection now with with listeners and and know that there's a lot that um, is part of uh, treatment and and treatment effects and outcomes Mm. beyond even just what we ask even beyond what we say even beyond what we do Um, and I wanted to touch on critical reflexivity and, and we, we touched on it with Natalia Costa and, and Karimi Mascotto, but I um, wanted to hear for, for the listeners who are, are still new to this term, as I am here, this is a selfish question for me, my learning. Um, <laughs> what, what would you, how would you describe it? And what might be some, uh, you mentioned that you've had some experiences with dialogues um, using a critical reflexive lens. Um, could you expand on critical reflexivity for us? Yeah, I guess like the first question I ask with critical reflexivity, and this is probably more at an individual level, why we do what we do. So asking, asking, challenging myself as to why am I doing what I'm doing? Is this because it's routine and because I've been taught to do this? Or is this actually because of um, what may be best for the patient? Um, And it starts to challenge then those taken for granted assumptions that what we do, what we do every day in clinical practice um is and even and then so thinking about our clinical practice but then thinking more broadly um to cultural factors within an organization or the systems that we work in and um often like the templates that we work with and the the environments that we work in are all just we've done it this way we do it this way because this is how we've done it for many years um and we don't step back to go is this the best or or is this effective or is this harmful or is this helpful um so it just starts to just to start to challenge us taken for granted assumptions um and like also like what i've said many times there's things that we can't change but there's things that we can change as well um and it's actually just starting to think about what are those things that we can change or we can start to influence um and then if we think like a bit more specifically um, with my research that we've been doing, um, one of the the big like because I'm looking at emotions and what emotions do within clinical interactions, it actually started to me to start to think about how do I actually recognize the stress? How do I how do I respond to it? Um, and often you start to think about people's different people. We all express our emotions differently um, and that's all to do with like our histories our social context the cultures that we come from like if you think about like from Ireland like it's a very stoic you don't like show emotion like you don't you, like distress is weakness a sign of weakness and like you just you have to hold it all together so like some everyone will experience it and express it differently so it's starting to actually step back and think about um what have I taken for granted about how people express their emotion? Um, do I think someone is over the top because they've been overly expressive and very sad or um, am I empathetic towards it? Am I seeking to understand it? Um, if someone is presenting as seeming like they have it all together, are there other signs of like what, like are they, are they okay? Um, or 
like starting to pick up on other subtle indications that maybe that they're um, they are distressed, but I haven't picked up on it. The, those um, li little signs or uh, even indications that someone might be experiencing distress, but they're, they're, they're not explicitly telling you about it or they're not uh, mm. disclosing or they don't feel maybe comfortable enough, but maybe something mm. within their facial expressions or the way they're moving or, or how they're responding to questions or how they're acting compared to previous yeah. sessions or all these kind of little things that yeah. we can bring yeah. to light and bring awareness to. Yeah, yeah. So we we use um, in my next study we talk about um, how physios recognize it. So who is distressed? How is that distress expressed? And how is it navigated? And we use different theoretical approaches to understand distress. So from a classical psychology perspective, that is a very physical understanding of um, emotion. So um, that's we can pick up distress through body language, through tone of voice, through how they're speaking through um, those very physical, how they're holding their posture, things like that. Um, and then when we think from a more symbolic interactional sense, so that's more thinking how, so including the biology, but also how social and cultural factors influence the expression of emotion or where and how um, and when emotion is expressed. So um, if we think about a patient and they've had many experiences in the health system, that may influence how they perceive the, the way they need to express their emotion, or um, it may even be a conscious or unconscious um, expression to get the kind of care that they, they think they need. So there's like an emotion management there. Um, and then we'll manage our emotions um, dependent on the kind of expectations of the organization or physiotherapy culture. So yeah, it's so many factors that influence it. Um, and I guess taking a reflexive, critical reflexive look is actually don't, what are my assumptions? What assumptions am I making about how this person is expressing their distress or even about my own as well and what's influencing it? And just challenging how we, yeah, how we respond or how, what, what are we interpreting from this or what are we, what are we thinking? What, um, and how does, how we, how does that impact how we relate with this person as well? Yes. So the uh, awareness of how uh, we are interpreting what uh, is presenting or showing up in, in our interactions, uh, like labels, for instance, and, mm, and naming exactly. of emotions, yeah. and then yeah. also how maybe it makes us feel, how it impacts us, because um, yeah. we're often uh, having the lens of quote unquote objective clinician, but we also have our own subjective experiences um, so exactly. how do we manage that yeah. Um, yeah. In, in the room with someone in a way that, that's yeah. patient-centered and that's uh, to, yeah. to, uh, ethical and, and of yeah. their benefit? And, um, or how, how might that be impacting the patient as well? And, and yeah, how it's impacting both positively and negatively and, and all the unintended consequences and possible harms. Um, yeah. So these are challenging questions to, to, to have, uh, I, I feel, even that that question of what why are you doing what you're doing uh, I, mm -hmm. I feel like that question needs to be done with with empathy and and sensitivity mm -hmm. and I, I can't Definitely. see it being done yeah. for instance on a social media comment section but um yeah. having a, a someone to reflect to guide to to support um for our own critical reflexivity practice mm -hmm. is, yeah. is essential yeah 
yeah exactly um i was just writing a little section from my paper as well like um, um this morning about how in my data um some of the clinicians actually talked about how helpful it was to have those clinic clinical um clinician reflexive dialogues and so it started to help them thinking about asking those questions but also understanding that other people experience the same thing um and it's a shared experience so you're not on your own um in this and and i think that's validating um and i think it's important to acknowledge that that it, it's hard and it can be um distressing um and also i think I could be really out there and saying this as well, like if institutions start to integrate this critical reflexivity and I'm talking around distress as well, like it actually starts to acknowledge that caring for people is emotional um, and all encounters with people are emotional um, and you can't separate that and actually starting to normalize that it is hard. And so there's a safe spaces then to actually talk about it and express it and actually process it and, supporting each other and how to navigate it better and understand it, I think, as well. There was a course that I went to recently with acceptance and commitment therapy and the instructor touched on the the stories that we hold about ourselves mm. being lousy therapists and, and mm. um, you know, we don't know enough, we're not good enough. And mm. I think uh, yeah. having a whole room of hundreds of therapists, of, of clinicians, um, sharing that experience, I think, yeah. brings to light that it's a shared human, yeah. normal yeah. experience. So I, I yeah. agree. And I mean, you're, you're talking to someone who's highly biased with clinical supervision and, and mentoring as part of my role. But uh, yeah. what do you feel would be helpful for clinicians to, to maybe start um, incorporating these questions, uh, critical reflexive uh, lenses to their practice? Would, would you say reaching out for, for help, would you say, um, maybe just talking about it with colleagues, asking these questions in a, in, in a kind, compassionate way? Mm -hmm. I'm thinking for, for people in private practice who may not have these spaces or these contexts, maybe reaching out to these contexts and spaces, wherever that might be. Yeah, I think we need more of those, like where, where people can connect with like-minded people to start having these discussions and conversations. Um, I think, I think you need to do it with someone. I think it can become very distressing and overwhelming if you're doing it by yourself um, and you start to go, what have I done? Um, and so you need connection, you need people. Um, and I think Daniel, what you're doing is great where you have like those discussions on social media as well. Um, and those opening those opportunities for people to start thinking about it. And even if it's just, people will see it and read it and then they start to think about all these different ways of um, practicing or that um, there are opportunities out there. there. There are people doing it and maybe trying to find um, support um, or people to connect with. Um, yeah, I think that's probably like later down the track for me of like, how do we um, integrate some um, supporting clinicians in this space. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and obviously full disclosure of my own role as a mentor who facilitates these spaces. I think there's, there's other spaces as well. And I can name, uh, Laura Rathbone, Bronnie Lennox Thompson, and other people who just offer clinical supervision, mm, um, yeah. e even destigmatizing therapy or counseling yeah, and seeking our yeah. own mental health care, mm -hmm. I think, uh, yeah. is way too much mental health stigma. So it, it, whatever steps it takes to yeah. access I think even spaces. like 
um, the concept of mental health is just not really understood um, and there's a lot of stigma attached to it and actually I think it's our emotional well-being it's not a it's like I think it's a very healthy thing to do to mm -hmm. actually understand ourselves more and how we interact with people how we respond to situations and it, it's a really healthy wise thing to do for ourselves for our personal relationships but also for our professional relationships and our patients that we work with absolutely to keep um, us safe and to keep our patients mm. safe as well um emotional yeah. well-being is going to be the term from, from that i'll steal from now on if we look at the the concepts of sociology and, and there's social theory that that, that comes to mind and, and i'm very knew myself to uh, the concepts of power, uh, like Michel Foucault's work and, and some uh, ideas of, uh, I think Durkheim comes to mind, but, but what, if for initial um, introductions, if we're going 101, when it comes to starting points for sociology with, without maybe uh, having to undertake a, an entire PhD as you're doing, yeah. we can steal some of your knowledge and also um, maybe starting points in general for sociology. What, what, would, what would you recommend for, for clinical practice? If we were to think about um, just there's um, a course that I've been helping my um, supervisor with, um, Introduction to Health Sociology. Um, and the first, one of the first things I teach in there is like structuring agencies. So, um, and there's like the structure agency debate. Um, so you've got like the structure, the systems, society that we live in, the structures that we work um, in, the political th factors that influence our lives. And then you've got the individual um, within that as well. So there's, it, I think it opens your eyes to beyond just the body as a machine and the world that we live in and understanding all the forces that influence and shape our lives and our experiences. So the health sociology, I think, can be helpful as a search term. And I've found helpful just to look up podcasts and any accessible information um, and the idea of the structure uh, and the systems that influence our behaviors and, and what we can and can't do and also what what agency we have as an individual to influence um uh, then the, there's a the concept of free will that probably goes into philosophy but the, those are the starting points and looking at the structures that influence patients that we see for instance yeah might be helpful. yeah the social determinants of health as well and influencing and understanding that and i think that um for me the context that i work in i work with people who um come from more disadvantaged backgrounds or lower socioeconomic areas and actually it starts to help you have more compassion um for and um, people i'm recognizing my privilege um but also i think all of us some of us have materially we're quite well off but also we're, mi we're missing connection in our society as well so our, our emotional needs for connection being met and feeling safe um Gabor Mate has a really good quote and I say this to everyone um threat is not the absence of oh no safety is not the absence of threat is the presence of connection and I think when we look at our societies and more individualized societies we're losing that connection um and I think that's a really sad and really important thing that we need to think about that we talked about uh discussing uh, our own common shared experiences emotionally as, as clinicians and bringing up emotions. And I think that's one of the, the key factors in connection. Um, and, and also the, that caring for people is, is a load. It's, it's a part of our mm -hmm. role. I think mm -hmm. it's, it, it's 
often not acknowledged or not um, discussed or not given enough space and time within our university, within our, our workplaces. So, so having that appreciation of the, the, the work, the load, and also the time it takes to, de to develop connection, I think. Is mm, exactly. Yeah. And it's for some people, it's not immediate, but often the then our expectations of our treatment is like, oh, we should be seeing change in within a session or within three sessions. But actually, sometimes people need time to trust us and to, and we need time. And like, it's it's a process. It's not an immediate, linear timeline, um, and something that can be fixed straight away. Yeah, I think it's easy yeah. to get into a, a with looking at social determinants of healthcare. I'm, I'm not sure about your experience, Miriam, but when I look at it, I, I get like depressed and low of feelings of mm. what, what can I do for this I know. Um, yeah and it yeah. can be easy for me personally to just shove that away or like ignore it or be like uh, I can't I can't do anything about it so why mm. bother acknowledging it even so it's yeah. there's, there's a yeah. sense of ignoring and then there's, it. There's, there's limitations like our neoliberal societies like it, it is all about creating the productive workforce and mm. and just how private the private sector the limitations within the private sector as well and like that economical factors of like how do we care for the people who are more vulnerable who can't afford to access healthcare that don't have as much choice and like they're it's really hard because you also need to make a living as well like it's how do we juggle all that and and I, I think you're right like there I have, like it is easier to ignore it um but then when you challenge yourself it's like it's it's confronting <laughs> And hence why we need more research, more more work done, more conversations, I think, like these, I think is, is a starting point to acknowledge it. I see it almost similarly to emotions and distress. Acknowledging it is the starting point for each of these concepts for both uh, an individual's emotional distress and experience and also for the, the just talking about maybe not with an individual in a consult, in their consult, but yeah. you're talking amongst colleagues about systems, about workplace culture of about environmental factors that influence our care and and bringing these conversations to light so that we can make the changes and i think yes, it's yeah. possible to you know erase all the social determinants of healthcare and and you know rid poverty and all these other factors social mm -hmm. isolation but we can have some starting points within our reach within our yeah. individual agency yes yeah yeah and little by little is there anything that I haven't asked or that you, you wanted to cover with regards to anything we discussed? No, I think we've, we've covered a lot of ground there. <laughs> I yeah. feel like I've waffled a lot. Um, sorry if it's um, not easy to understand. Necessary <laughs> waffles, very needed, <laughs> important waffles. Um, Miriam, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm, I'm excited to, to see what you find from your, your work with emotional distress and for the listeners who are interested in reaching out to you and finding out more about what you're doing, where can we contact you? Um, so I'm on, it's not Twitter, what is it? X? X, yes. X, <laughs> at Miriam underscore Dylan. Amazing. Right, so I will also be, uh, continually share your papers. So um, oh, thank you. check out for the listeners, check out our discussion group. Um, and I'll also add in your Twitter handle to the show notes of this episode. And it's been an absolute pleasure, Miriam. Thank you so much for, for sharing and, and congrats on the first podcast and hopefully one of many. We need more of, oh. 
of you and your work. So thank you very much. Cool. Thank you so much for having me.